Before we have today's Bible reading, I'm just going to have a very quick refresher on what the city of Babylon represents, because Babylon's going to be coming up again in today's reading. So Babylon is a symbol. It's a symbol of the arrogance and the extravagance and the indulgence of man in godless civilization. So Babylon represents a society that rejects God, it's a place where its people elevate themselves to the place of God, humanism. It's a society that rejects the law of God, and because it has no basis for its morality, it descends into immorality. It's a society that tramples the world's poor and takes advantage of the world's weak, and it persecutes the disciples of Jesus, because disciples of Jesus choose to live counter to the culture of Babylon. Okay, so now with that little refresher of what Babylon represents, uh, let's read chapter 18 of Revelation. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plague shall come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendours are lost to you, never to be found again.
The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that is clothed in fine linen, in, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all its wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors of all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like that great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and, prophet, sorry, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any... And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. What's the fruit for which your heart most longs? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Or does your soul long more for the fruits of physical pleasures or physical niceties? What fruit does your soul most long for? I guess another way of asking this might be, what do you spend most of your time pursuing? Uh, what do you most dream about? What do you invest most of your money towards? What do you spend most of your energy trying to achieve? Possessions? Position? Assets? Qualifications? Entertainment? Some of life's little luxuries? Sport? Or maybe you dream of acquiring more real estate... Or maybe you're someone who loves the latest gadgets and you're waiting for the latest eye device to come out so that you can get one. Or maybe it's public recognition you want, or authority, or seniority. Or maybe your heart longs for romance. Or maybe you long for a family. Or maybe it's just a longing to be loved and to be needed or wanted by somebody special. What fruit does your soul most long for? As we've been working our way through this book of the Revelation, something that's really struck me is how much time it spends talking about the downfall of Babylon. 
It's talking about this downfall of godless civilization in all of its wealth and prosperity and its rejection of God. The book of Revelation attaches an enormous significance to this one single event. We catch little glimpses of it in Revelation chapter 14 and again in chapter 16. But then the whole of chapters 17 and 18 and a little bit of chapter 19 are all about the fall of Babylon. Now, when John wrote the Gospel of John, he only wrote two chapters on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he's writing two chapters, two complete chapters plus a bit more, on the fall of Babylon. Now, this should be giving us a little bit of a hint as to just how highly significant this event is going to be. But why? Why is it so significant? There are two great evils that seek to derail God's children. One is the attack against where Satan would try to destroy us or where Satan would try to destroy our faith in some way but the other well it's a much more subtle temptation it's a temptation to draw us aside and usually a subtle temptation is much more effective in derailing christians than what a head-on attack is you see when satan attacks us head-on it's obvious what satan is doing to us and so what do we do about it well we fall on our knees of course and we pray and, and when we call out to God to help us and we stand firm against the devil in his nefarious schemes, but a subtle temptation, the temptation which is ever before us, that temptation to just draw aside a little bit in this area or draw a little bit more aside in this area, well, that's not so obvious. I mean, that's what subtle means. It's not obvious. It's something which just creeps up on us. And it... As it draws us in, it draws us away. And that is the effect that the pleasures of physical life can have on us. The longing of the soul is diverted from things of the spirit to things of the flesh. It's diverted from the eternal to the temporary. It's the longing of the soul is diverted from the things of God to the things of men from the knowledge of God and delighting in the presence of God and just enjoying our relationship with God gets shifted to just delighting in the feelings that we get from earthly experiences. And this is why the downfall of Babylon is such a significant event. For, for millennia, the wealth, the trappings, the pleasures, the luxuries... The sexuality, the sensuality, the entertainment, the arts, and even the lifestyle of godless civilization has tugged at the heartstrings of just about everybody. Not many of us are immune from it. I'm not. And it draws us away. It diverts us from godliness. Now, the picture that we're given here of Babylon is Babylon is demonic, it's impure, it's immoral, it's unfaithful, but it's also intoxicating. It's addictive and we like it because it brings us prosperity. We like it because we enjoy its luxuries. 
It's exciting, it's, it's enticing, and it can deliver so much of what our hearts long for because our hearts are naturally drawn to the here and now, and it promises to deliver on these promises. Here and now, we don't have to wait. But what does God say to us about Babylon? Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues. You hearing this? When the people of God take part in the sins of godless civilization, her judgment become their judgment. Our godless civilization entices us and entraps us in the ways of godlessness. It's, it's very hard, almost impossible to live in Babylon without taking on some of the ways of Babylonians. But the true children of God strive to do exactly that. Right at the start of the book of Revelation, we had the letters to the seven churches. And what do you think those letters are all about? These letters, in these letters, sometimes they were commended for living as God's children. But quite often they were being warned that they were about to be judged. Why were they about to be judged? Because they were starting to live in the same way as what the godless world around them were living. Especially in the sins of idolatry and immorality. So... In what ways do Christians get drawn into godless society? Well, there's heaps of ways. If I was going to give you every single way that Christians get tempted to, to be drawn into godless society, we'd be here a very long time, and then I'd miss most of them. So I'm just going to give you a few examples. Firstly, let's begin with materialism. Always like to begin with some of those safe sins. You know those safe sins that we sort of say, oh yeah, I'm sort of caught up in those. But they're sort of, it's a more respectable sin than others. You know, I don't feel so bad. So most of us will probably say, yes, I'm a little bit affected by materialism. Any, anybody willing to confess? Anybody willing to confess? Good. Three of you are affected by materialism. Excellent. I make the fourth. Uh, can we ever have enough stuff? Yes, I know the saucepan will cook rice, but a rice cooker, it's dedicated to cooking rice. I've got to get me one of them. And yes, the Bromptons have a rice cooker. Yes, I know the kids are going to have lots of fun with a bat and ball out in the backyard, but they probably are missing out a little bit. They're not, like most of the other kids have got, got, got a nice Xbox to play with, and maybe we might get them an Xbox to play with this Christmas. Yes, I know my old chainsaw is a very good chainsaw, but this other one, it's much easier to climb the tree with because mine's too big and it's dangerous. I need to get this one. I'm having a bit of a dig at myself here, aren't I, Mrs B? I just bought a new chainsaw. Can we ever have enough stuff? And don't think for a moment it's only the wealthy who have to have all the latest gadgets. Something that really surprised me, when we visited Tonga, um, most Tongans live in very simple homes, only two or three very small rooms, and they don't have much stuff. 
But what really struck me was the number of teenagers who I noticed were walking around with their own mobile telephone. And mobile phone plans, I, I looked into it, are actually very similar to what you pay here. Uh, and so they would actually be paying more for their mobile phone plans than what they would be spending on food in a month. Uh, it's not only the wealthy who feel they have to have the latest gadgets. It's materialism, see. It affects all of us. We always want more. A newer car, a bigger house, a new pair of shoes, a dress that we haven't already worn, um, another diamond ring, another gun. Having a dig at myself again. Uh, more land, more cattle, uh, a change in furniture, more irrigation entitlement, a bigger superannuation fund. A luxury holiday. Do we ever stop to consider that if we did with less, we could be helping those who had nothing? And I wonder how many more people would be saved if we put less energy into striving for more and if we put more energy into sharing the gospel and sharing our faith and just taking time to, to be with people and listen to them and share with them in their ups and downs of life. And so materialism is something that diverts us from godly living. But when God judges Babylon, the merchants are going to weep because the whole system is going to collapse. Our bank accounts, if they not already like this, uh, will be worth nothing. Anything you've saved will be worthless. Your shares and your superannuation fund, that which you've been stacking up to be able to live on for the rest of your life, it'll be worthless. I wonder, have you ever stopped to consider that everything that we have is temporary and it is worthless? You know, I think most of us, we tend to think, yes, 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 we know that it's worthless, but that's okay because when this all happens, we'll, we'll be with God. No, no, the downfall of Babylon is going to happen before Christ returns. Even on this earth, there will become a time when all of these luxuries that you've strived for, all of this money that you've stri striven to accumulate is going to be worthless. The whole system is going to collapse. We heard talk there about the merchants who are going to weep because, oh, we can't sell the luxuries we used to sell anymore. What are we going to do? To pursue materialism is to be diverted from God's eternal pursuits. Right, so that's one example. Let's now go for one which isn't quite so polite to talk about. What about immorality? How do Christians get drawn aside into Babylonian ways of immorality? Satan has done a very good job of convincing even Christians that the moral standards that were the norm in our culture over the last hundred years or so are simply old-fashioned and outdated for today. Uh, do you know... Uh, traditionally, why traditionally our society had the moral standards that it did? Did you know that 
the moral standards that my parents and my grandparents assumed as normal, a little bit back, further back in time, they weren't normal. During the period of the Great Revival, stretching from the mid-1700s through to the mid-1900s, so many people came to faith in Jesus Christ and so many people had life-changing experiences that their transformed lives influenced a whole society. For example, when under the ministry of John Wesley, the Methodist revival began, at that point, English society was in a state of absolute moral depravity. Drunkenness, violence, sexual immorality. I mean, we talk now about we marvel that people were getting transported for all of these major crime, minor crimes, getting transported to Australia and whatnot. Do you know why they were? It was a crime epidemic. Society was just a mess. In a book published in 1811, so that's over 100 years ago, it was a pretty old book, it was written by a bloke by the name of William Hurd, who I know nothing about, but he set out to describe all of the religions of the world. And when he described the Methodist revival and the impact that God was making in lives, he said this. A stronger impression was made on their minds of the importance of things eternal. And they had more earnest desires of seeking God than they had ever had from their earliest childhood. Thus did God begin to draw them towards himself with the cords of love, with the bands of a man. Now, I don't know what that phrase means. I tried to work it out. don't know. Many of these were in, short time, in a short time deeply convinced of the number and the heinousness of their sins. They were also made thoroughly sensible of those tempers which are justly hateful to God and man and of their utter ignorance of God and their entire inability either to know, love, or serve him. All right? So in other words, he's saying they were convicted that they were sinful creatures and they knew that they needed God. And he goes on. At the same time, they saw in the strongest light the insignificance of their outside religion, nay, and, and often confessed it before God as the most abominable hypocrisy. Right? So they're realising that their outward show of religion was hypocritical because it, it wasn't something that was happening in their heart. Thus did they sink deeper and deeper into that repentance which must ever precede faith in the Son of God. And from hence springs fruits meet for repentance. The drunkard commenced sober and temperate. The whoremonger abstained from adultery and fornication. The unjust from oppression and wrong. He that had been accustomed to curse and swear for many years now swore no more. The sluggard began to work with his own hands that he might eat his own bread. The miser learned to deal his bread to the hungry and to cover the naked with a garment. Indeed, the whole form of their lives was changed. They had left off doing evil and learned to do well. What was he describing? He was describing the acts of repentance 
combined with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's describing lives that were being transformed by the Spirit of God, which is the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there were so many of these new disciples of Jesus, there were so many people who were beginning to to live godly lives like they had never lived before, that godly morals became the new standard for their society. In that same book, it goes on to say this, in London particularly, a great change was soon perceived in the majority of the common people. An unusual seriousness appeared in their countenances. And they refrained from profaning, from profane cursing and swearing, and the alehouses were deprived of their usual inebriated guests. You see, morality has nothing to do with being old-fashioned. Morality is about spiritual renewal. And likewise, immorality has nothing to do with being liberated and modern and up-to-date. Immorality is about embracing the same old spiritual depravity that has always been a part of our world. It's an expression of the same old godlessness. As I talk with other pastors... I have discovered that we share an increasing concern. Why do so many people who profess to being Christian engage in drunkenness, premarital sex, or even live together before they're married and they don't see anything wrong with it? How... Can they possibly find these practices as being compatible with their Christian faith? And I don't know what their answer is. Many see it as times have changed. Societal norms have changed as well. And yes, that's true. Because we live in godless society. We live in Babylon. And we shouldn't be surprised that our society gets more and more godless and their morals and their ethics decline and begin to crumble. But what's that got to do with a Christian? For a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be living by the Spirit means that we do not conform to the morals of Babylon. Disciples of Jesus are transformed. To live out kingdom values. Christianity without godly transformation is empty religion. And empty religion is something we need to repent of. And so some Christians get drawn aside to immorality. Thirdly, some get drawn aside to idolatry. Now, we might start thinking, oh, yes, but that's not a problem for our society. That, that would be for the people who, who maybe live in the Hindu nations and, or maybe once used to be this other religion. And Well, no, some Christians begin to embrace the practices of other religions, feeling it doesn't really hurt, but it does. Idolatry is being unfaithful to God. Remember, the church is is the bride of Christ. We 
we're Christ's wife, right? And whenever we embrace the practices of other religions, or whenever we acknowledge another God, we're being unfaithful to God. A fourth example would be selfishness. There's no doubt about it, we are the me generation. Um, and we've, we've got to look after ourselves first, haven't we? That, that's what we're always told. Um, and so it's easy for us to begin to believe this and to get diverted from the things of God for reasons of selfishness. And yet the very first thing that we are called to give up when we become a Christian is priority of self. The way of Jesus is the way of self-sacrifice. And yet many want to claim it as the way of self-fulfillment. Where Christianity becomes important to us just as long as we can get something out of it. Is that really why we are disciples of Jesus Christ? Just so that we can get something out of it? You know, even the message we preach sometimes is, you know, come to Jesus so you can be saved for eternal life. Well, yes, that's a wonderful message. And it's a wonderful gift. And it's true. It's great. But is the only reason that we worship Jesus is because we're going to get something out of it, no matter how great it is. Shouldn't we, as disciples of Jesus, shouldn't we be his disciples simply because he's worthy to worship? Simply because he deserves it? Simply because he is the creator of heaven and earth? He is the one before whom we should fall and, and give praise and honour? Simply because it's due his name, not because he's going to give us stuff. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Okay, so that's just a few examples of ways that our godless society can divert us from the path of Christ into the paths of godlessness. That's what godless society does. And that is why the fall of Babylon is going to be such an important event for us. That temptation is going to once and for all be destroyed. So I'm just going to finish off how I began by asking that question. What's the fruit for which your soul most longs? Will you be glad with, when Babylon and all of its prosperity and luxuries and security is gone? Will you really be glad about that? Because it's pretty enticing. I think about when the Hebrews were conquered and they're taken to the land of Babylon and they sang that song, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. And they came and they told us to sing a song for the Lord, but how can we sing a song of the Lord when we're in a foreign land? But they were told, you're going to be living in Babylon and be good citizens of Babylon, and they were. But then when the time came for them to return 
when the time came for them to come out of Babylon. There were some who decided, actually, we prefer it here. We don't want to go back to Jerusalem. We actually like, we've set ourselves up here pretty well, thank you very much, and we're doing okay. We don't want to go back to Jerusalem. Will we be glad when Babylon has fallen? Are we going to be like those Hebrews who want to stay, stay there and keep enjoying its luxuries? So I guess the question for today is, are we living in the spirit and living for eternity? Or are we living for today and for that which is not eternal? Heavenly Father, I want to praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to praise you that he is our Lord and our Saviour. I want to thank you also, Lord, that he is our master, the one whom we can follow. Lord, I want to thank you for the encouragement that we can have that while ever we were following Christ, while ever we take up our cross to follow him, then we need not fear that we're getting caught up in the ways of Babylon, that we need not fear that we're getting caught up in the ways of godless society. For, Lord, we know that as Christ walked the road of obedience to you, that he was not entrapped in those ways, but he was persecuted by the godlessness around him. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and strength so that we would continue to, to be strong followers of you. But, Lord, I pray also that you would give us hearts of repentance Lord, sometimes we've been drawn so much into the ways of godlessness. It's become normal in our society to, to expect the luxuries. It's become normal in our societies to be a bit immoral. It's been, become normal in our societies to even use bad language and And to just expect to have stuff. Lord, help us to repent of these things. Help us to set our hearts on the ways of the world no longer. Help us to follow in your footsteps. Lord, may our hearts not grow sad at the destruction of godless society, even though all of its luxuries and everything of which we sometimes enjoy, even though they'll be gone forever. Lord, let us not mourn these things, for we rejoice. We rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ and the higher purpose, the better calling that you've put on our lives. And help us to follow you faithfully. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us personally now. Lord, that sin which we know that we've been participating in that you find repulsive, that which we've tried to justify in our own minds, and yet we've held on to it for so long, 
Lord, we repent of this now. We turn our backs on that. Even though the cost will be significant. Lord, we know that every time we repent of something, some sin in our life, we know that the rewards will be great. Lord, give us courage. And by your Holy Spirit, May you develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That we would truly be children who live for your kingdom instead of the kingdom of this world. In Jesus' name. Amen.